Grab your popcorn and silence those cell phones because the show is about to start. Rick and Nick Talk Flicks. Rick Blaine is an award-winning film critic featured on thebigscreen.net.org and has been highlighted on over 75 unreleased independent film posters in less than 12 different countries. Nick Brown. He's been the high school projectionist for the AV Club for over nine semesters and can be heard nightly at the theater talking loudly in the row behind you about the film being screened. And now, they're joining forces. Ladies and gentlemen, Rick and Nick Doc Blitz. Say hello to the bad guys of the movie screens. <laughs> we're taking a dark turn today, man. Yes, we're going dark, baby. Yeah. Because the-, the girls, they like us bad boys. <laughs> it's Rick for, and Nick talking weird flicks. reason. The big bad nerds talking in row 12. So you can enjoy the movies. You know, those are bad guys in their own right that should almost be called out. But uh, we're yes, going to go they bigger are. and badder. Yeah, that's a different kind of villain, isn't it? A different kind of movie villain is the guy in the row next to you who just won't stop talking. That's the social justice warrior that tells them to be quiet that I can get behind. Rick and Nick Talk Flicks is brought to you by the Bemidji <laughs> Theater, which at the moment does not have anyone talking in row 12, but as this pandemic will come to an end, they will open their doors, movies will play again, and a great place to go see them, because that's what I do. I'm Dave Brooks. I'm Joel Hoover, and I am really missing being at the Bemidji yeah. Theater and other theaters right now. It's, the longer this drags on, the more I, I go, we really need that summer movie slate if it can come around. Yeah. It's I mean, summertime and the summer movies, they go together like bacon and eggs. They just yeah. do. And, oh, you're going to have a summer of 2020 with no movies. Maybe some coming out on VOD or something that's been out forever and you never watched it. And that's great, too. But uh, we're going to get a crazy fall and winter, though, if things are able to get up and running by then. Yeah. It's going to be like the 1812 Overtures ending is what we're going to get in terms of movies. It's bang, bang, bang. What Cannons last, going off. What was symbols. the last movie you saw in the theater? Oh, man. Um, it's weird. These last few months, they've just kind of been... They blend together? Yeah, they, they kind of blend together, and it's been so bizarre. Funny enough, I just oh. got uh, 1917 was the last one I saw in the theater. That was it. And yeah. uh, I just watched it at home. And I'm thinking, this is weird. I don't think I've ever watched a movie at home for the first time, and it's the first time I've seen it since the last movie I saw in the theater, which right. is the same movie. Yep. That's something I never thought about. Yeah, yeah, 1917 would probably be the last one that I went to see. Um, Great yeah, movie, right, by the way. Right there around that Christmas, New Year's time. I, I went to see it a couple of times because I, I enjoyed it so much. But And yeah, I've got it on Blu-ray now as well. But um, th- that is a strange feeling. With how often you go to the movies, Dave, yeah, that's that's the point we're at, though. But as far as news is concerned um, related to movies... We've got news. There, there's stuff still going on. There are two merger-related news stories that you brought to my attention here today. Don't, don't know if you could call it news because news is an actual thing. But you know, po- the possibility, speculation. Well, 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 some speculation, some possibility, some having tread, some having some sniff, whatever you want to call it. Yeah. And you know, right now you've got a lot of folks in the in the entertainment business that are struggling. You know, movie theaters are struggling and. And other things. Um, so part of it would be mergers and acquisitions in order to survive and move forward. Now, one of them, uh, the AMC movie theater chain, which is a national chain. We don't have them where we are here. We have them in down in the Twin Cities, but we don't have them here. 
Um, obviously, nobody going to see shows. So AMC has been talking about filing for bankruptcy. They're also kind of getting into a, a, a spitting contest with Universal Pictures because Universal yes. wants their movies to be seen, and they need income from these movies being seen too. So they're kind of skipping theaters, not that that's really an option to go to the theaters right now, and putting a lot of their products out on video on demand with a $20 you know, per view, paper, pay-per-view. And AMC has not been happy. They're not happy about this. And so they're now threatening to not show any Universal shows, which... And they're not backing down from it, and neither is Universal. And I can I can see both sides of the story here, and I can see both ends of it. But at the same time, when Fast and the Furious finally comes out, because that's a Universal picture, you think the theaters don't want that kind of box office with the built-in buzz? Whether we think it'll be any good or not, they want, they're going to want it there. They're going to so get people coming out for somebody's it. Somebody's going to blink, and everyone needs to do what they need to do to survive, and I get it. But the the window of time between when it comes out in theaters and when it can be available for video, whether that's VOD or you know, streaming or whatever, has always been, call it a minimum of three months. And now it's just, there's no window at all. It's just going direct to video. But it's only temporary, right? I mean, AMC, I don't think, is seeing that this is only a temporary thing that they're doing with some of these movies that were scheduled to be released at a certain time and that who in, it might be hard to kick back a release date on. It's only a temporary thing. It, it's not like they're going to do that for their future movies or that they're saying that they're going to do that. It felt to me like it was a short-sighted kind of thing from AMC to make that declaration of we're not going to play your movies when all of this passes over because they're only doing this for movies that they can't get that they seemingly can't get a kickback on in terms of release date is that the way that you saw it i i see it a couple of different ways i see that but i also see there's now that the internet has become a thing and streaming is a thing that a lot of companies are trying to get it to vod or streaming or whatever faster because the content that you can get, if people, there's a lot of great movies that'll come out, but people don't see them for whatever reason. Box office numbers have been dropping gradually, slowly. Then, of course, they'll have a big spike and you'll have a record setting year. And then it's doldrums again. And some of that can be blamed on product and less movies. And time of year. Yeah, time of year. A um, lot of reasons. But there's been a push for a long time to shorten that window between theatrical release and video availability. And the theaters, I think, are just seeing this as an opportunity to do away with that window altogether. And theatrical release is an option, but not one that necessarily needs to be taken. But that's not necessarily anything new. There's a lot of movies going back to even the 90s that never went to the theaters. They just came out you know, on direct-to-video movies. And, of course, there's right. a reason why a lot of them were. You'll see them show up on you know Hallmark Channel or something. Yeah, not major tentpole no. movies, though. But, I mean, a lot of the big ones, they're not going to skip the box office because that's a huge source of revenue. James Bond, they pushed it to November now, not, you know, uh, No Time to Die. There's talk now that even that is going to be upped and they'll push it into 2021 because who knows what's going to be going on, say, Thanksgiving time with the new release. It was supposed to be out about a month ago. So it's going to get pushed, and other movies that haven't been announced to be pushed are just – it's a formality. And then the other side of this coin, and this is more speculative, um, we talked about this in our Star Trek episode where you know Paramount Pictures was owned by Viacom and then there was a big company split. Long story short, you can look up the details on the internet. Well, it split up the whole Star Trek band. Well, now they've got the company reunited into Viacom CBS. Here's the problem, though. After the split, CBS did great, Viacom not so much. 
So when the remerger happened, the company Remerge has got some serious debting issues, and they are really facing some financial hardships right now. They could be ripe for takeover. Some folks have thought maybe Disney would buy them up. But you've also got to think of the streamers because you've got more and more streaming services coming. It's not just Netflix and Hulu and Amazon anymore. Now you've got others that are coming. CBS All Access is going to be retooled into whatever they're going to call it they're talking about this summer and really start to pull in Paramount because now they're the same company. Well, the talk, the rumors are is that Netflix is taking a very serious look at Viacom CBS to purchase them outright, whether the, the whole thing or just taking the streaming access and the Paramount libraries because content being what it is, content is king. The more they can get out there, that's one less competing streaming service and that's also a lot more content. And if you think about how rich the Paramount library oh, yeah. is and CBS That's like adding shows, another arm. Oh, yeah. It's, it's, a, it's like a nine-legged octopus now. It's going to be – I mean, you think about what CBS has got in the vaults. Think about what Viacom and Paramount right. have got in, uh, in network shows. But whether or not Netflix would want to get involved in broadcast TV and actually take over CBS, would they buy the whole thing outright? Or might they take what they want and sell the rest off in its own kind of package once they've taken out what they want to keep and trying to get some money back that way? Be aware of that possibility. And uh, if you're a Star Trek fan like I am, now that the brand is sort of reunited and you don't have these, you know, the clearly two distinct, one has a license to the other. It's a long story. You have to look it up online and we've kind of talked about it already. Um, that could be good news for Star Trek fans. I could easily see them getting the TV arm of things, that they would get all of the shows and they would have access to the... Well, I've seen some of what CBS All Access has. They they would probably get access to a lot of the old shows that they have, as well as the new ones, and, and they just, they'd have all of those in one place, plus any new content, like picture Star Trek Picard, something like that. I, I could see that running exclusively through Netflix then as well, and that they would use that essentially as as the the front for all the new shows that would be coming through that CBS Viacom partnership to run through Netflix now. That that they would essentially be under that. that Netflix wing. is associated with Star Trek, but only internationally. Um, they feel like they got burned with Star Trek Discovery, which is also being streamed, and that and Picard are on CBS All Access. Right. And Netflix will hand that out internationally, but not in the U.S. They've the got U- the other titles yeah, Netflix does. They've, they've got a lot of those, um, but now that CBS and Viacom are back together, CBS All Access is going to be retooled, and they're going to have all kinds more from Paramount. Now, they've got a lot of the shows that are on you know Netflix right now, and so does CBS All Access. Those are on both. But the movies are harder to find these days. Yeah, that's where there, there could be an interesting discussion between the two parties is what do they do about the movies? Because then you are really opening up a massive catalog that you would have to sift through. Oh, yeah. And, you know, content is king. And with all these new streamers coming up, uh, just about every movie studio, Warner Brothers and Universal, they're all going to be coming up. But that's not to say necessarily that it's all going to be exclusive. Any Universal movie, Back to the Future, is only going to be on the Universal streaming service. I mean, that could happen, but that's kind of dumb. 
because I don't want I only want to subscribe to so many things. I don't want to subscribe to everything just for right. this one thing. That is starting to grow. The clamor of that feeling has grown considerably. Yeah. I'd love to see some of the shows that are on Hulu, but I'm already subscribing to three. Yeah. I don't want to do four. And I've not cut my cable because I do like what's current and I don't want to have to subscribe to other streaming services. So basically cutting the cord to save cost. It isn't kind of like what it used to be, where you're doing that to save some costs because I don't want to subscribe to everything. Well, if you want to see everything, now you got to subscribe. If you want to watch sports, you got to subscribe to MLB. If you want to watch this, you got to subscribe to that. And basically, you're replacing A with B, which is basically a more complicated version of A. Yeah. It, I just I don't see it. So there's a couple things I do want to see, and so I've got Netflix, and I've got I do have CBS All Access because I'm a Trekkie. And uh, Disney Plus, because we've got a kiddo in the house. And that's going to be it. I'm not going to do Hulu, and I'm not going to do NBC or whatever. You're showing reasonable restraint. Well, yeah. Essentially. And there are shows I'd love to see, but I may not. So that's okay. It'll be. I don't need to see it that bad. I'd love to if I got the chance. And at yeah. some point, something will come around. But uh, yeah, this this could be an interesting one. So where you've got people that are looking at ways to get through this pandemic and survive this in a way that 20th Century Fox and Disney's merger is still shifting in the landscape. This could be another one that maybe the old studio system as we knew it is going away and others are going to be coming together. And that means the other smaller players like MGM and Universal and Warner, not that they're small players, they're certainly not, but they're not going to be that big compared to the super giant Disney Fox. They're not going to be the super giant of Netflix uh, and Paramount if that does become a reality. Um, maybe Universal and Warner would have to come together into something because then you need to find a way to survive. Consolidation on streaming is one thing. When there's consolidation as far as these production companies, that concerns me a little bit. And yeah, me I, too. I mean, I know we got into that a little a long time ago when we talked about the uh, the merger of Disney and Fox, but the merger of all those things it takes away from from some of the creativity that comes with each respective company and with what they bring to the table that's the biggest thing that sticks out for me is are we going to lose some of that if this continues and if this trend spreads from streaming services where maybe it would be good to have a little consolidation to production companies where consolidation might take away from creativity well look at say deadpool for example they did two great movies and now it's owned by disney is Disney going to put out a hard R superhero movie? I mean, I don't see that happening. Right. They would almost, Disney for a while had other sub-production companies, whether it was uh, Touchstone Pictures and so forth. Uh, maybe that's what they do. They create a second brand or continue the 20th Century Fox brand, 20th Century Disney or whatever they want to call it, and it makes the more adult-oriented fair. It's owned by Disney, but they're not necessarily movies for the kids. But also movies that have come out. 20th Century Fox, like Paramount, has got such a storied, rich catalog of great movies that go yes. about as far back as movies go. Well, where are those movies showing up? Some of them are on streaming services and other places, but what happens when those existing contracts go? They're in limbo right yeah, now. Yeah. I don't see a, an adult section on Disney Plus right now. No. I'd love to see that come. 
This is the adult section. You need to have a pay code to get in here. I mean, you subscribe to the system, but so you don't get the kids finished watching Mary Poppins, and then they click on the 20th Century Fox logo, and they watch Alien, and you're in the other room doing whatever, and you don't know the kids. <laughs> Just You thought it was a safe service. It's like, you know, you need a special key to get into this room so the adults can watch Predator or whatever. Yeah. Um, that's, that's something I'd like to see, but that could be a concern when you get all these groups coming together. That's right. The winners write the history books, and well, if you're from Disney, well, I don't need to put a spotlight on Fox movies. Maybe you should because it's not your been the case so far on Disney Plus either. Maybe it will in the future, but it's not been the case at least so far. Yeah, yeah. Princess Bride is there, but yeah, that's that's kind of very Disney esque. But that it was is. a 20th century Fox movie. Yeah, but I don't see the abyss. You know, it's, it's there's a lot of great movies that just aren't getting they're put away in the vault. And Disney was supposed to do away with the vault, but now the vault is AKA 20th Century Fox movies. So I would hate to see um, if content is king and you want to acquisition these things so that you can get those properties out. Great, do it, get them out, and continue that legacy. Not every movie has to be family friendly. Grab your black hat, Dave. You ready to get bad? It's time to talk some villains. Yeah, we have not talked villains. Throughout all this time that we have done this podcast, we have not dabbled into the the wretched hive of scum and villainy that that exists within <laughs> the movies. And this was a topic that when we threw it out there um, for the idea, we both just jumped at it. I mean, I was like, hey, I, I've been thinking, we haven't done villains. And you were like, yep, that's yes, what we're doing. Absolutely. Yeah. Villains are so interesting because they, they play so many different roles within a movie as far as it, you need that protagonist and you need that antagonist but at the same time you need that antagonist to have a little bit more than just being the bad guy the idea for doing this episode today came from when i started thinking about a movie that i that i own actually the great race which has tony curtis and jack lemon and uh, natalie wood and it's it's just a really funny movie from the 60s um it, just this this sweeping grand Big race, the automobile race around the world involving this um, great Leslie who's dressed in white, the dashing hero, has the shining smile. And then you have Professor Fate who is dressed in black, the classic bad guy. That's who Jack Lemmon plays. Um, and they're going up against each other in this race. And it's funny because Professor Fate is this um, is just this great piece of satire. He is the, the classic... Movie villain played to every trope that you can think of as far as that snarl, the mustache, <laughs> dressed in black, the evil music plays in the background as he comes on. And it, 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 but it's more comical than anything because then he's got a bumbling assistant, he's bumbling himself, and it just it becomes farcical then. But when I thought of Professor Fate, I thought of that's kind of where villains in a classic sense can get shoehorned with movies, but the really, truly memorable villains, they they have a lot more to them than that. Oh, yeah. You know, villains serve a lot of points, and there's good villains and bad villains as far as their quality, rather. Um, and, but really what a villain does is they need to be the force that pushes back against the main plot of the movie so that the plot has a hurdle to get around or over, uh, whether it's comedic, whether it's truly frightening you know and there's there's some great villains that are out there they're not all james bond villains either i mean just last night i watched uh gene hackman as lex Luthor in the superman movie 
And boy, he's such a good but kind of comedic villain. You know, and I, I will, I'll admit this. I learned a few things about Lex Luthor somewhat recently. because I don't read the Superman comics. I'm not a big comic book reader. But Lex Luthor's character originally, and now there's like 900 different versions of the character depending on who's writing it, uh, who's acting in it. Um, but Lex Luthor, the, some of the best traits of a bad guy are those that don't believe that they are the bad guy. They believe they're acting in the best interest of whatever. Right. And when it comes to Lex Luthor in his most purest form – He's very wary of somebody that can't be stopped. Well, what happens if Superman, for whatever reason, decides, I don't need these puny humans? Who could stop him? You know, so he needs to come up with, he's not trusting of this guy having all these powers. This is not good. So being so invulnerable is inherently a bad thing. So Lex Luthor's coming up with, call it a safety net for the betterment of mankind. And that's kind of the root of it. Now, depend, the movie I saw, he had a land development scheme. I'm going to drop some missiles and drop California into the sea so I can buy up all this what is worthless but will be priceless real estate. Okay, not exactly pure Lex Luthor. Selfish it, intention. Sure, yeah. but it was a great story and it made it awesome. And yeah. But you know, Lex Luthor in his most pure form, that's what partially makes him such a good foil because he's, he doesn't have the strength, he doesn't have the superhero or anything, but he's really smart. And in the Gene Hackman era, is very comedic. He's got this bumbling sidekick and the beautiful It's just it's a great take on the character. It's yeah. different, but it worked for what it was. Much better than um, no no offense to uh, Jesse Eisenberg, but I, I that took away from the movie. I think in a lot of ways, I did not like his take on Lex Luthor at all. But um, yeah, you, if you get a good foil. For the main plot or the main character, that is a good trait for a villain. Well, that movie didn't work at all, which brings me to... Yeah. I, I came up with some criteria that I think have to exist for a memorable movie villain. For, for a truly memorable movie villain. First and foremost, I think you have to ask the question, is the movie good? I do think you have to ask that question, because if the movie is good, or if the even if the movie is not good, but the, the character itself and the person who plays it they have just a they got to knock it out of the park kind of role to to pick up an otherwise bad movie if the movie is good i think that helps uh, i think that says hey there's a villain in here who works and with the examples i provided with the criteria i think that that suits so i came up with seven but then you added that foil piece which was great and we'll we'll come back to that but the first one that came to mind is they have to be gen- and by the way to be a memorable villain i think you have to have at least one of these but if you have multiple i think then you've got a really really good villain on your hands number 1 they have to be genuinely scary or horrific or unnerving and that's where we come to some of your favorite movie villains the horror film villains i wrote down two examples jason voorhees and michael myers they have to be genuinely scary you have to be terrified that this person's presence is on your screen and that they are coming for whoever is in the movie. I I think to have a a particular type of memorable villain, having that fear factor exist, but not even just a fear factor. Imagine that that unnervy feeling that you have when some of these different characters come on the screen, like that kind of make your blood go cold a little bit when you see this person. You might have a really good villain if you've got somebody who elicits that kind of reaction. Yeah, but you see him step on screen 
and you're... <sighs> when Darth Vader steps through that door that the stormtroopers have just blown open after the laser fight, you're... Whoa. Yeah. He's, I mean, talk about wearing a black hat. He's head to toe black. Face, too. I mean, just wearing this dark mask and... <sighs> Jason scared the bejesus out of me when I was a kid because, in a way, not only are they scary, part of what makes them scary isn't just their look. You know they're not to be messed with just by a glance, but they're also pretty much unstoppable. They've got, whether it's skill or they seem to be invulnerable to anything else, Yep, uh, they cannot be stopped. And you see all these things happen that you'd think, that'll, that'll stop them, but doesn't. The door, boom, right through the door. Well, lock your windows and doors, kids, doesn't really seem to apply here. Nope, doesn't matter. He just blew through that one. You know, so is this going to be something where whoever the the final protagonist turns out to be, if you're talking about a slasher movie, who's going to be the final girl? Can she stop him? Because an axe didn't work two frames ago. You know, I don't know if this is going to work. The lightsaber, no, he could defeat you with his lightsaber. How can you stop him? That leads perfectly into another piece of criteria that I have. They have to pose a constant threat if they're going to be a memorable movie villain. I wrote down three examples. The alien. Actually, I wrote down four examples. The alien from Alien Alien. is a constant threat throughout that movie. Even when off screen, you wonder, when is this thing going to pop up? The Terminator, same thing. Constant threat throughout the course of that movie. Agent Smith in The Matrix, always a threat, always around, sinister as well. And I also wrote down Sauron from The Lord of the Rings, although you kind of see Sauron's influence through others throughout the course of those movies. But like you said, with those horror film villains, there is that constant threat of when they might pop up, as well as that feeling that they can't be beaten. And that's a a key piece, too, is if you feel like a villain presents this unassailable challenge to to the heroes involved or to those who are trying to survive them, then you've got something that might be working. I agree. And I think we should probably take an opportunity here to draw a line between a villain and just a bad guy slash antagonist. Because if you're going to talk, say, Biff Tan and Back to the Future, Thomas L. Wilson did a great job in that role, but it's comedic. And he is more of a comedic actor anyway. He's menacing. He's sort of a constant threat. He does meet this, but he's also played to be the dumb guy. He's why don't the dumb you make jock. like a tree and get out of here? Not why don't you make like a tree and leave? He's getting it wrong. That's as funny as a screen door <laughs> in a battleship. A yep. screen door in a submarine, you idiot. You know, it's and that falling into the manure truck or whatever. It's he's the constant foil that never yeah. wins in the end. But he's comedic and he's stupid. But he's legitimately a bad guy. But is he a villain? That depends on your definition. You know, he's he's a memorable guy, and some of them are meant to be funny. Uh, Kevin Klein won an Oscar for A Fish Called Wanda, playing the role of Otto, which is one of my favorite roles, and he is a complete idiot and just completely funny and off the wall. I mean, he won an Oscar for the role, but is he is he menacing? Well, sort of. He's more like a thorn in the side. You just wish he'd just be flicked away so that the good guys can go off and do their thing or whatever the case. But, you know, is he a villain? No, but he's the antagonist. Yeah. You know, so you got to have to draw that line. And kind of what we're talking about here are the true black hat villains, James Bond or otherwise, you know, villains, Jason hockey mask wearing or otherwise, the villains, the straight up bad guys. And the, the most recent role that you talk about, the constant threat, yes, they're always there. And you're always, as an audience member, kind of nervous what trick they're going to pull up. So yep. depending on the movie, 
Terminator, for example, he'll show up. The good guys either find a way to stall him, knock him down for long enough, or they manage to evade him and escape. But you know he's coming again. And you're kind of nervous as an audience member because he's going to learn from that last one. Well, you're not going to fool me again, so you got to be more creative the next time. Well, that was pretty creative. How can they get more creative to keep this guy at bay and keep away from him? So you all, you genuinely, as an audience member, start to squirm in your seat because I, I, I don't know if this guy is going to be able to get away this time. That's right. Rick and Nick TalkFlex is sponsored by the Bemidji Theater. So that brings me to the piece of criteria that you added when we were talking pre-show today. And I was like, that's too good not to have in. And and some really suit this well. And that's that foil piece that you mentioned. And you had two excellent examples that you gave me before we started the show today, Dave. And you already mentioned one of them, but there was another one that I liked as well. One of the Some of the best villains that I think work the best and I, I think there's a lot of people all the while that back that up, is when you almost have the same coin and it's two sides of the same coin. Um, a really good one, a somewhat more modern example, I can't say modern because this movie's eight years old, James Bond and Raul Silva. You know, Javier Bardem and Daniel Craig, they're both spies, or one of them was a spy, retired. They both have the same background, but they are a counterpoint to one another. Uh you know, Captain Kirk and Khan, Noonien Singh, they are the flip side of the same coin. They're both cunning. They're both smart. They both believe they're fighting for the right thing, but one of them is clearly wrong and is warped in this. And they are both crusaders in a way, but for completely polar opposite things. And that's a really good, you know, you need a salty to the sweet. You need a yin to the yang, and they just fit together perfectly. Perfectly, and that's what makes Lex Luthor interesting too. And, and so, actually, three examples that you gave: yeah. Joker and the Batman. I mean, there, there's one reason why the Riddler isn't as great as foil for the for Batman as the Joker is, just because the way those characters are constructed. Right. The Joker is all about, you know, really spelled out more so in the Heath Ledger, Ledger <laughs> Heath Ledger version, chaos and anarchy versus we're going to put things right and remove things from chaos and we're going to serve justice to those that have it coming from the Batman's perspective. They're flip sides of the same coin. And that's what makes Kirk and Khan so good and dynamic together. And not to mention the way the actors play off of one another is crucial to it. Point and counterpoint. Point and counterpoint. Yeah. And it's just it's amazing to see it work. It just works so well there's a reason that joker keeps coming back even if they drop him off the top of a cathedral they're going to have him come back at some point lex luther's never going to be you know gone forever uh he will keep coming back and you know there will be more kirk and con i'm sure at some point because it's hard to write a better character than that some of the most compelling villains have this piece to them complexity you've got to have some depth and complexity that question of what is their motivation behind doing this And can you even sympathize with them a little bit? Seeing things from their point of view, all of a sudden, you have a slightly sympathetic view, even though they may be doing things for the wrong reason. I have three really prime examples of that. Michael Corleone is one from the Godfather movies. You know this guy is a bad guy. He becomes that bad guy throughout the course of the first movie, and then you really get into him consolidating his empire in the second movie, but you see some of the the why behind that as well play out throughout the course of that movie and the motivations, the reasoning. And they they try to present this character in a way that you're going to be able to 
maybe feel kind of bad for or maybe maybe want to kind of root for a little bit too, even though you know this person is bad. Think of Commodus as well from Gladiator. Commodus is an extremely complex villain who you learn at the beginning of the movie. He's, he was expecting to become the new emperor, and yet his father, Marcus Aurelius, he knows he can't. Up. He knows he can't because he is as corrupt as any of the politicians, and that, that corruption is why things need to be turned back over to the people through the Senate. And then Commodus feels uh, he had tried and tried to please his father, and yet his father says, your failings are because of me. And then Commodus decides, uh, Commodus ultimately, yeah, he decides to take matters into his own hands, but then you see him kind of become unhinged in the process as he's trying to do this, and you see why his father was so concerned about him taking that role. But even from the very beginning, they paint him as this very slimy guy from the beginning, and yet... When you go through that piece where he interacts with his father and ultimately kills him, you then see some of the struggle that he deals with in terms of he expected this, and he was kind of bred for this, but he's not being given it, even though his his dad is admitting that he had wrongdoing in, in putting him in that position. And then one that you and I know very well, Kylo Ren, another very complex villain. And you see that complexity get fleshed out in Kylo Ren even more than than perhaps Darth Vader's complexity. Vader's complexity only really came with time, um, and especially with Return of the Jedi, you see the complexity on display a lot more in that movie um, as far as the inner conflict. Kylo Ren's inner conflict goes for three movies, and it gets a lot more fleshed out. Um, plus, it, it includes a confrontation that was very, um, very grim as well as a, a good a big center centerpiece point to his development when he has to face off against his own father han solo in in the seventh star wars movie yeah it's the complexity darth vader you brought up a good point he's really just more than a not more than a black hat and somebody that has history with obi-wan i'm uh, getting to him in the, in the original yeah and then you get the, the big twist. I do believe at some point we've mentioned spoilers are forthcoming. So one of the biggest spoilers in movie history, one of the biggest twists, you find out an empire, oh, Luke's dead. You know, what, what? And then he ultimately redeems himself at the end of Return of the Jedi and kills the Emperor. Oh, wait, no, I guess he apparently didn't kill the Emperor. Eh, whole other thing. Anyway. But, you know, then you start factoring in the prequel trilogy and you see this this young kid who's rising to greatness fall. That added the complexity to it. It really did. Yeah. You know, whether you were a big fan of the prequel movies or not, it added a whole other layer. You know, why did Anakin fall to the dark side? Well, it was because of love and he was trying to hold on to things, whether it was because he lost his mom and he's not going to let that happen again. And he just holds on to Padme too much to the point where he forced choked her to death and she died later of her injuries and broken heart. Um and then you see the second half, which was the first part we saw, where he's kind of redeeming himself gradually. Um, you know, Kylo Ren, in a way, kind of goes through the same thing. It, not completely, but it's not that foreign compared to Vader, I guess. So, like grandpa, like grandkid, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, but even complexity isn't required. You know, look at some of the more complex villains you run into and you go into the James Bond franchise here. You know, you get guys like Raul Silva from Skyfall, very complex villain. Then I think one of my favorite bad guys from all of James Bond was one of the henchmen who didn't have much of a story at all, who was just a, can you guess who it would be? Jaws. Yeah, Jaws, <laughs> the guy with the metal teeth. And uh, we just called him Mouth when I was a kid. You know, like, I think they say his name like one time in the movie. Like, oh, here comes Mouth, here comes Mouth. 
you know, he doesn't have the story. He's just the unstoppable giant guy. They do everything. They drop a car on him, and he's fine. He just gets up, brushes himself off, bites through the wire. He's just an unstoppable foe. I don't like him in Moonraker at all, but in Spy Who Loved Me, he's one of the best. He was pretty good in Spy Who Loved Me. He became a farce yeah. in the later movies, but yeah, Spy Who Loved Me, he... You know, he's actually somewhat useful there. And yeah. he's just, all he is is a tool. You know, the, the main bad guy, uh, Stromberg, I think was his name? The, yeah. the main bad guy, he wants to destroy the surface world and start an undersea kingdom. And his motivation is like, yeah, yeah, far-fetched, you know, megalomaniac with a lot of money. And he's just a little on the crazy side. But Jaws is what made the antagonism interesting. Not so much Stromberg. That's why I created a category for Are They Memorable? Is there a memorable piece to them? Darth Vader is a memorable villain. There is a memorable element to him. He is literally covered in a suit of armor and has the mask and the and the breathing and the voice and all of those things. He's memorable. I even went a little offbeat here. Shooter McGavin is a memorable villain because he is a certain type of guy. He is that upper crust country club guy who doesn't feel that a person of Happy Gilmore's ilk belongs on the PGA Tour and yet he has these quips and these lines that are tremendous, and he thinks he's above everybody else, and his arrogance makes him extremely memorable. Hal 9000 from, uh, from 2001 A Space Odyssey, another memorable villain. A little red villain. blinking light on the wall. That's all he is, but talk he's about, memorable. Talk about unnerving, because all of a sudden, as, as that movie goes, you realize what this little red light on the wall can actually do, and his voice as well, the logic with which this computer tries to make these decisions. Absolutely mellow, like he's just had a Valium, but now he's going to kill you. And yet there's more complexity to Hal than there is to the human characters who are on board there on the ship. So is there a memorable element to them? Jaws with his teeth, that's memorable. You know, a memorable element helps create a memorable villain or maybe there are elements that make a memorable villain and ultimately jaws at the end of that movie lives they drop him into a tank with a shark well surely those jaws are going to be the oh no the guy won he the the guy with the mouth ate the shark what and he swims away at the end and unfortunately that was all undone in moonraker but he's still prior to that one of the even still one of the best Bond villains there are. Zenya on a top. I'm going to crush you with my thighs. Whoa, that was out of the blue. But I mean, it was it was memorable. And Famke Johnson, she's a beautiful woman, and she's so sadistic in that movie. She's oh. like those people that stub their toe and they're like, oh yes, you know. It's just what it just makes you cock your head and look weird at the screen and go, are you wait what? Kind of gross too. Oh, <laughs> memorable in a lot of ways. If you didn't see that coming, and all of a sudden you're like, "Whoa, that's interesting." Yeah, and let's see how she does up against Bond. How ironic that Jaws would survive in a shark attack, and it's Jaws who comes out of it. Yeah. Okay. Oh yeah. Well, speaking of that, the shark in Jaws, another memorable oh, yeah. villain for for the fact that this is this is an animal. This is this is nature, and that adds that its own piece of a memorable portion to. Uh, to the puzzle there with what makes that villain interesting. You know, you look at the nature villains, and it's kind of interesting. My son and I were watching a nature show that he likes, cartoon, and today it was about predators. And some people, humans have a hard time sometimes rectifying with predators because they're only doing what they do. But when you go to, like, Jaws, when you go to the edge with the grizzly bear, it's almost like the predator's doing what a predator does, and then there's one step beyond that where it almost seems 
This time it's personal. You know, it's 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 actually yeah. a vendetta of some sort. You know, with Jaws, you find out in the famous Indianapolis scene that Quint was aboard the USS Indianapolis, which you can Google the story about that uh, from World War II. The ship goes down, everyone's in the water with the sharks, and a good portion, probably over half the crew, get eaten by sharks. But he survives. So he's become sort of Captain Ahab. Maybe this is the shark that came back to get one of the survivors. You almost yeah. get that vibe. And that, you know, Quint is the last one to go before the shark gets done away with. And the book and the movie are very different from one another, but uh, it ends with a bang in a lot of ways. The bear in The Edge was a real bear. It wasn't an animatronic like the shark was, but it almost seems like it's personal. It's after these people, and it will not relent. Makes it almost personal of an attack. It makes it more than just a predator and you have to survive nature. Now it's personal and it's it's become a straight-up villain. couple more criteria I had. Intelligence, smarts, and not just I've got a big brain and it's being kind of thrown at you on our screen that this person is very smart, but you learn that the person is smart. Two big standouts in that category. One is Hannibal Lecter. Oh, yeah. Absolutely clear right away. This guy is on a different level in terms of the mental side of the equation. When he's interacting with Clarice Starling, you can tell this is a battle of wits more than anything. And that Lecter clearly has some kind of a plan in mind. And you get that in The Silence of the Lambs. The other guy who came to mind, Hans Landa from Inglorious Bastards. Another one who is makes it clear right away early in that movie that he is a sharp, intelligent guy and very diabolical because that whole interaction in that opening scene, painstakingly long, you wonder where it's going, and then you just get your heart ripped out at the end of it. And it's like, oh, my word. This guy, this guy's a serious villain because of the smarts. Yeah, and you almost feel... Not sexually, but you feel an attraction to those kind of villains because you almost admire portions of them. So it's almost like salty and sweet together. You're attracted to and repulsed by or repelled by at the same time. You know, it's like a car wreck. You can't not look. You know, so you get, you know, the scenes with Jodie Foster and Hannibal Lecter looking directly at the camera. So you're almost doing a POV moment, and you just locked into the gaze with Anthony Hopkins. Funny, I just brought up two of his movies, Silence of the Lambs and The Edge. And his is a fixed gaze while Clarice is is trying to figure out what's going on, as well as being very unnerved by who she is looking at. Oh, yeah. And you've got, you've got, you know, you almost have a a slightly elevated version looking down at Clarice Starling. You've got a slightly looking up at Hannibal Lecter. And that dynamic shifts as the conversation goes. So who's starting to get the upper hand, so to speak? But when he's looking at you, you really want to look away because it's uncomfortable, but you can't. And as nuts as he is, he is just bizarrely brilliant. And when the movie's over, you're like, wow. Not only was that a great ending, but what a character. You know, having an old friend for dinner. Ah, it's a pun, too. You know, it's everything about that role is great. So he almost becomes an anti-hero. You know, not that Hannibal was a great movie, but it was one where you're rooting for the bad guy in a lot of ways. Well, I don't want to see him get caught. I want to see him get away. And when he comes back in Red Dragon, same kind of thing. He becomes an antihero in a lot of ways like the Joker in a weird way. With the Joker, that brings us into another category, the unhinged villain. 
And the Joker certainly fits that. The Joker fits multiple categories yeah. that we have, have brought up already. But that unhinged villain, the Joker, Gollum, Anton, Anton Chigurh from, um, no, from No Country for Old Men, another good example of that. That really unhinged villain. Which is another Javier Bardem who's got two great yeah. villain roles. And I read something where psychologists looked at, uh, I can't say his name all of a sudden, Javier Bardem, his role in No Country for Old Men when he did the Anton role, is probably the most screen-accurate version of what a psychopath, sociopath, truly is. Just absolutely no empathy. He's going to flip a coin. Doesn't really care at all whether I do it or I don't do it. He could care either way, but he will. And without thinking about it, ba-boom, done. You know, it's it's disturbing when you think about it, um, just how accurate that is and how chilling he did it and how very different that role and the role of Silva is in Skyfall. Two very memorable bad guy roles, maybe some of the best ever, by the same guy. And it's not like he did a one-trick pony act and did the same role in two different parts. It's They're very different characters from one another by the same guy, but both about equally as memorable, really spectacularly done. The unhinged piece is another one that fits under that whole unnerving idea as well because you really don't know what this person is going to do. It's like like having a serial killer on, on a movie screen or something like that. You don't you just don't know. With the Joker, that's what makes him such a difficult villain to defeat in The Dark Knight, in the original Batman. Because you don't know what he's going to do. He has a plan in mind, but at the same time, he's just a dog chasing cars as well. And you really don't know what that's going to mean then. But he's clearly got something brewing, and he's he's got more of a plan than you realize. But at the same time, it's an unhinged plan that has a lot of variables and a lot of unpredictability. And that's, truly does not care. Yeah. I mean, in The Dark Knight, he's got a... I mean, how much money do you think was in that pile that he lit on fire? Oh, a couple million? Yeah. And he didn't even care. Just and the other bad guy's like, "What? You're you're pretty like, I don't care. It's not about the money. Not about the money. That's don't right. care." Yeah, Gollum is a good example of the mental unhinged nature too, and and how solely being fixated and focused on one thing can drive one to madness, as well as impact everybody else around that person. Even as Frodo is trying to utilize. Gollum try to utilize Smeagol for their benefit for their good it is a tenuous relationship that plays out throughout the course of that movie and ultimately to a very fateful end you know funny enough some of those more memorable roles when the actor shows up in another role maybe even if he's a good guy it's just unnerving I remember there's one guy Patrick Bergen is his name he's an Irish actor he played an abusive husband to Julia Roberts in a movie called Sleeping with the Enemy and he was very good at it. I mean, you just hated that guy. And I'm sure in real life, Patrick Bergen's a great guy. But I would want to kick him in the throat just because of that movie. So he's actually one of the lead terrorists in uh, Patriot Games. Harrison Ford, Jack, uh, um, uh, Tom Clancy, oh, Jack, uh, Jack Ryan, there we go. And he's, he's still a bad guy, but he's not a horrible bad guy. Sean Bean is in that as the kind of the second lieutenant, but he becomes the main bad guy in a way. But Patrick Bergen did such a good job, I want to just, you hate him. You want to punch him in the face. If I ever met Anthony Hopkins in real life, I would be just really nervous of him. Ricardo Montalban as yeah. Khan was so nerve-wracking. 
even when he shows up as Mr. Rourke in Fantasy Island, you're just I'm I'm wary of him because I saw him put eels in the guy's ear in Star Trek Two. That's right. And even in the Naked Gun, it's just a fun comedy, and he's saying outrageous lines, but still, you know, he's capable of dropping a seti eel in Lieutenant Drebin's ear because I've seen him do it. I know. Just would make you nervous. I know. I've talked about this before. Is it Joe Pantoliano who plays um, who plays Cipher? In, yeah. in the Matrix. Yeah, when he pops up as Lenny in Memento, you really do have a suspicion of him. You really are suspicious of him because of who you know him as in a previous movie. And I've talked about that before, but it's a great example of what you just described. As playing against type, and when he shows up as the police captain in the Bad Boys movies, you almost think he's going to do, there'll be some sort of a double cross coming. There'll be an inside yeah. something, and he'll be the guy. Because you never see him. I mean, he's in the Goonies, and he's a bad guy. You know, but he's, I don't think, other than the Bad Boys movies, I'm trying to think of any movie he's been in where he's the good guy. Well, Memento, he, Not really. he kind of, well, he kind of is, but he, he uses, um, or wait, He's he's not Lenny. He's Teddy in yeah. there. Yeah, he's helping Lenny. And, but is he? But, but at the same time, he's using Lenny at the same time. Yeah. But he's, you know, you, you could call him anything less than honest, which would certainly fit. Bad guy. Yeah, you know, but the whole thing about that movie is you don't know exactly what you're looking at because everything's got so many twists and turns, more so than a roller coaster. Um, but ultimately, at the end, what kind of a taste do you have in your mouth for him, bad guy? Last piece of criteria for for a memorable movie villain. Um, again, one or a bunch of these, and you've got something that might be going. But the last one that came to mind for me is an unexpected evil, and this is maybe where you get some of some of the very best who you don't expect to be wearing the black hat, but they are or they do, ultimately in the end. Verbal Kint from yeah. The Usual Suspects, great example of that. You don't have a clue until the very end of the movie, but then all of a sudden it just hits you like a ton of bricks that this guy who's been telling this story the whole time, he's the guy. He's Kaiser Sose. Phyllis Dietrichson from um, Double Indemnity. She started the femme fatale idea within a, a film noir. You think that they're that they've got this plot that they're doing together, and they're no, she's a lot badder than you realize in that movie, and and she makes it known by the end. Norman Bates, an unexpected evil, very unexpected evil. Another one who uh, you you can put him in a lot of categories. The unhinged category, absolutely. But Norman Bates is also that unexpected evil. And by the end, you get that scary, going back to the scary category, you get that scary feeling when you get that last shot of him inside that cell. You realize this guy is evil. This guy is truly a bad guy. Or is he kind of a tragic figure in that he's not the evil guy, he's just the host. There's the complexity. For the evil. You know, it's not him. You know, and not to, well. We are going to give it away. We do spoilers, but you know, he killed his own mom in mental self-defense. I suppose you could argue, in a way, if you know the backstory. Yeah. So it's enough to the point where he felt so guilty. He but that's created the complexity. Split, he's created that split personality, and yeah. it's not him. It's the mother side. He didn't go to prison. He went to a mental hospital for twenty-two years because he was ruled not guilty because of insanity. Mother did it. And in the whole second movie, you feel sympathy for him, even though murders happen again. But is it him or is it somebody else? And is Martin is is Norman being slowly driven insane again by outside forces? It's you know, so he's a tragic guy. He's not 
evil, but he hosts evil in him that rises up. Yeah, he that's why he's such a good villain because he fits so much of the all of those different things and and he's a blend of all of them together, but but you genuinely don't like him. You know, you get that unsettling feeling when you when you watch him throughout the movie, but then by the end it turns into a terror. It well, turns into a different kind of horror and it's that realization that he's just a regular guy. Yeah. You know, he's not he's not this creature. He's not he's not even fully wearing the black hat in terms of the way that that we think of villains. He's just an everyday guy. And it's interesting when you get two people playing the same role. You've got Freddie Highmore, who played Norman Bates in the TV show Bates Motel, which was uh, recently on A&E, and did a very, very good job. Then you have Anthony Perkins, who played him in the movies. Very twitchy, very unsettling. Even before you know what's going on, you're not sure about this guy at all. He just seems a little off. Nice guy, but I don't know if I want to sit down and have coffee with him anymore. Just I feel unsettled. And then the shower scene happens. You're like, oh, he's after the money. And then he throws the money away, and he didn't even know about it. It's not about the money at all. It just throws the whole story out of whack. Yep. So the whole movie starts as one thing, ends as a completely different thing, and it's one of the biggest twists in movie history. And it's funny how many of those twists are tied to bad guys. You know, the usual suspects, one of the biggest twists in movie history right at the end, to enough that it's been spoofed in scary movie. You know, it's, uh, it's funny how a lot of those work and how they're tied to bad guys and their intentions and so forth. Yeah, it's uh, it's funny. You ever seen a guy that you like in a role that plays a bad guy, like Harrison Ford and What Lies Beneath? You know, he's Indiana Jones. He's Han Solo. He can't be the bad guy. But can you buy it, or are you? I couldn't buy it. I can't. You can't root against Harrison Ford. Henry Fonda in Once Upon a Time in the West yeah. comes to mind. You know, he's dressed in black and he is just a bad dude in that movie. And you're going, this is Henry Fonda. Are you serious? I'm supposed to... Th- yeah. At two, he Mr. Roberts? Is no. a, oh, yeah. He is <laughs> a bad guy in this movie, and he gives you plenty of reasons to see that with the murderer that he is and the way that he treats women and all of those things. It's like, wow. Yeah, they, they completely turn type with the guy who's playing it or the woman who's playing it. It's interesting to watch those instances as well where you put this actor into a role that they typically would not fill and then it's like oh man this this is something completely different i'll give you a flip side julianne moore in uh the kingsman the golden circle where she's just sweet as honey just oh she's just she's mom you want to go give her a hug but she's absolutely diabolical and uh i mean to test your allegiance to this you're going to Grind this guy up into a burger, and I'm going to serve you the meat, and you're going to eat it. What? That's messed up. But it's Julianne Moore, sweet as honey in this very 1950s era. It's just bizarre. But then you get guys like James Spader, who I think he's just waiting for a great serial killer role. Because he's such a, kind of like Anthony Perkins in a way, he's just he's not settling. So they get him, sort of. And he's in, intelligent. Yeah, and very intelligent. He's kind of Hannibal Lecter-esque. So they get him in you know, Avengers Age of Ultron, sort of. I mean, he's the voice, but still. It was motion capture, too. Um, it worked better for James Brolin. It didn't really translate that well for Ultron. You know, he just, it's, it wasn't bad. It just wasn't great. Plus, but, the movie wasn't all that good. Yeah, it wasn't bad, but it just it dropped the ball a little bit. But there's a role, a meaty, smart, serial killer, Hannibal Lecter-esque role that's out there waiting 
and James Spader needs to be cast in it, and nobody will be able to sit in a restaurant if James Spader comes in. You're all going to get a check, please. I got to get out of here. I can't be here with him. You know, he is, and he's a great actor. Comedic, yes. Drama, yes. Bizarre, yes. Oh, yes. He's got that Christopher Walken unhinged kind of, he might That's eat his dinner with example. a fork or he might stab that guy with a fork. He could do both. Well, yeah. I mean, I think of it, the TV show that I remember seeing him in, The Office, when he was Robert California. Like, completely, what is this guy doing is is kind of how you feel in there. Um, and then you've got also, I, I know he's been in the blacklist for a long time as oh, yeah. Red in there. And, but and, even that one episode on Seinfeld where he's the doing the 12 Steps, and he finally gets unhinged at George Costanza while scooping ice cream. <laughs> Even there, you're disturbed, and it was a one-off on Seinfeld. Yep, that's right. Yeah, so th- that's the criteria that I had um, as far as what makes a memorable villain. But on the flip side, really quick, Dave, um, where do you see examples where it doesn't work as far as either not having a memorable villain or not having a villain who really is packs a punch where do you see examples like that that don't work i can I, you know bond has got some great villains and they've got some non-villains too you know there was mr it was um um dominic green in quantum of solace now that movie suffered from a lot of things namely a writer's strike um the movie itself is really eh. you know it looks pretty and there are some memorable moments to it but that movie is really kind of hollow you know it just and the bad guy What's his motivation exactly? It just, it doesn't, it's one of the weaker bad guys in all of James Bond, which is funny because it's situated right in between Casino Royale, awesome movie, Skyfall, awesome movie, and then there's the low valley in between that is Quantum of Solace. That movie, it's skippable, but it just, it's watered down. If you don't have a motivation, they got a good actor, you know, um, uh, it's a French actor, Matthew, I can't pronounce his last name, Al- Alric, I think is how you say it, maybe. He's a good actor. I've seen him in other roles. And he shows up and he does good and he's twitchy and he's just, you know, something about him. But you can't just stand there and be twitchy. You got to have some motivation, some character drive, whatever. It's completely devoid. You got to be fleshed out a little bit you more. You got to be yeah. fleshed out. There's And there are some bad examples of Bond bad guys i don't get the whole deal between dr no the very first bond bad guy he's got mechanical hands and there's rumors that he might be showing up in the next movie um but i don't you know he's not the most memorable guy to me you know it's just jeffrey you know i don't know but other guys like goldfinger you know they even had to dub him but he had a motivation to him was he necessarily menacing not really he was a pretty smart guy he was a smart guy but he wasn't menacing but he was memorable well, why? Well, sometimes he's got that X factor. You can't define it. Was it the fact that Odd Job backed him up and that was the muscle to the brain? That helped. It was a master blaster situation. You know, Tina Turner did a great role in Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome. She's Tina Turner, you know, but she was menacing and she actually did pretty well. Who would have thought she could hold her own against Mel Gibson? But she did. And uh, it worked. It really worked. It was completely believable. Um, but, you know, there's so many. Characters that are written poorly, movies that are rushed, you know, Revenge of, you know, Age of Ultron comes to mind. You have a great cast, you get all the stuff behind it. James Spader, and it just didn't really rise. One dimensional villains that too readily fit a shoehorned type of character are the ones that really stick out in my mind. And you can you can see them. You can tell when a character is kind of really getting shoehorned as far as a villain or they're there's just they're flat 
on the surface or the when you try to flesh them out, even it's like they force these certain elements to them um, as far as this is their backstory. This is why they are doing this. That Let's kind of get that a little bit more naturally within the course of the movie rather than it feels like you're slapping me on the face with this. Well, like any good story, any kind of good drama, you've got the two forces, whatever it is. You have what's trying to push the story forward, and so the audience is along for the ride, call it protagonism. And then there's something, an object. Sometimes it's not an evil thing. You know, sometimes it's the weather, maybe, you know. And there's a force that's pushing back. So that's what makes the plot work. If you're going to have a personal objectification of an ant, of, an, of, a, of the bad guy, you need to have something that works with the plot. If you have a bad plot and the bad guy is drawn out of the plot, then you have a bad, bad guy. Now, can you fix that? There's some great movies, with, there's, there's some bad movies with really good, memorable bad guys. Just about most of those Friday the 13th movies come to mind. You know, they're not exactly Jane Austen. Some are better than others, but you have a very memorable bad guy. And so it is one of those things where you, you can have both. You can have one or the other, or you can have none. It's bad story, bad plot, bad, bad guy that just nothing seems to drive. So it, it really kind of comes out of what, you, what kind of work you put into it. You're going to get out of it what you put into it. You can get a great role handed to a character actor that can't carry the role, or vice versa, a great actor with not much to do. Bottom line, villains have to be complex. Villains have to have depth to them. And I always wonder what's next. What What's next in a trope that we know so well as far as the movie villain? Because seeing that get invented and reinvented over the course of the history of movies has been really fascinating. Like if you watch older movies and you see how a villain was then it's interesting to compare that to the way villains are today. Um, I, I think about the born identity, which I just watched um, a couple of weeks ago. The born identities villain is more or less the government. The, yeah. Even though they are trying to do things for the quote unquote right reason, or they think are the right reason there's a lot of complexity to to them being the villain because it's an entity. It, it's kind of a structure. And they are trying to do things for a certain reason, but the means by which they are doing them is pretty shady. And then that gets Jason Bourne into the, into the crosshairs. So you add in an element like that, or you add complexity to a villain like that, and I think that's where I'm, I'm curious to watch where villainry goes, or... Is the villain a concept? Is the villain starting to becoming more of a concept? Or are we even seeing heroes become the villain more in oh. movies today? I think there's a lot more examples of that where characters are not as black and white as they used to be as far as this is good, this is bad. There is a blending, a gray area that is, is infecting movies and TV shows more and more. Breaking Bad comes to mind. Because Walter White starts out as being the protagonist, by the end of the show, he is the antagonist. You get examples like that in movies today, too. Oh, I think a good example would be the newer version of Ocean's Eleven. I mean, it's a it's about a robbery. So obviously you're going to cheer against the people that are trying to steal the money, but the roles are completely reversed. You have uh, Danny yes. Ocean and his crew. Those are the, the call them anti-heroes. They're the burglars. But who they're stealing from, Andy Garcia... You know, he's a bad guy. He's an owner. He's, he's going to get stuff. He's going to get stuff stolen from him. But he's kind of ruthless. He doesn't really care about his. You know, it's Julia Roberts, his girlfriend. Doesn't really care. He would trade the money for her to get the money back. 
So you can really spin things on its ear. Look at Rutger Hauer in Blade Runner. All he really wants as a replicant is to live. And it's built in a life cycle and it's coming to the end. He just he's, All he wants to do is live. But you're not supposed to live beyond whatever. So we're going to stop you, even though he's right. going to pretty unscrupulous means to do it. But he's a memorable bad guy. And the fact that Rutger Hauer just watched the movie The Hitcher can be really genuinely creepy. Or a schmo, you know, when he shows up in Batman Begins, you know. Yeah. But he was a, a very well-known actor. He, it were, there was another great serial killer role waiting for him. If he and James Spade were like brothers. Oh, that who's going to be the creepier of the two? <laughs> Unfortunately, that's not going to happen. But yeah, Christopher Nolan really wanted Rucker Hauer for for Batman Begins because of his versatility in that. Oh in yeah, that way. He, you watch him, and he's from not Sweden, Finland, some somewhere Icelandic, and uh, maybe it was Sweden. I can't remember. Uh, but he was one of those guys. He could do it all. He was really funny, but he was also really deep. And he was just something about his yeah the way he could do something with his eyes. They were just piercing blue, but they could really Hannibal Lecterize you if you really got caught in his gaze. You couldn't look away. Heroes and villains, though, the line between them seems to be getting less and less defined these days. And I think Agatha Christie had the right idea when she wrote Murder on the Orient Express. And I just got to watch the most recent film version of it, the Kenneth Branagh version, um, this just this week. I've and, read it. I've never seen either movie. I've read it. Well, I, I won't get into too much of it then, but you see... Well, you can't spoil it. I read it, but Oh, anyway. okay. Well, yeah, perfect. You've read it, so you know. Um, but you see in that movie, and I'd, I'd like to watch the older version too, and, and in the book as well, you get that sense of... Right and wrong are are sometimes hard to define in certain situations. They're negotiable. Heroes and villains are sometimes negotiable as well. And movies today seem to explore that maybe more than ever. And that adds a layer of complexity. It makes you ask some serious questions as well and try to figure out where is what is that line when it comes to the decisions that you make and what who is right and wrong. In many cases, the answer is a lot more complex than than you would originally think. Well, this will please you because this goes to the Dark Knight trilogy. So at the end of the Dark Knight, you've got Harvey Dent, who was the city's district attorney. He was the white knight who had become bad and evil. And Talk if about becomes aware, If they become aware of what he actually did, it all falls apart. So right. Batman becomes the bad guy, even though it's, he's not. And those who are in the know, they know. But they have to go through this dance. They have to chase him because that's the illusion they have to be brought up. So the reality, who's the bad guy, who's the good guy in the public view versus behind the scenes are different. So they exist for both, in a way. Harvey Dent, good guy, but also bad guy, depending on this and that. So it's interesting, the dynamic, it really depends on your angle. And like we said before, some of the best bad guys are the ones that think they're good guys. They think they're doing what is right. They think they're doing what's best for the public. Lex Luthor, we're going to defend Earth from this guy who can't be stopped. There's nothing to stop him other than his own mind as to whether he's going to be with us or against us. We can't afford that because if he decides to flip, it's too late. You know, is he fighting for the better cause? If you look at it from that perspective, all right, you know, the pandemic is just trying to live, but we don't want it to live, you know. But then with these characters doing the wrong thing for what they think is the right reason, what they may think is the right reason, it may not be as right as they think it is, or 
it doesn't justify the means by which they are doing that wrong thing. What was that movie? I think it's called The Siege. Uh, Bruce Willis, Denzel Washington, Annette Benning, where terrorism kind of it's got a lot of 9-11-esque, but it came out in the 90s, and it's about martial law. And Bruce Willis is the general overseeing this town, I mean, like New York, being shut down. And he's doing the right thing, but he's going to a level that is rather extreme. So he's almost like, I wouldn't even call him an antihero. He's, he's the antithesis for this. He's the bad guy, but he's not the bad guy. Very kind of complicated. It's, it's a darker, more gritty movie where there, it's, it's not white and black. It's shades of gray. And uh, if you're trying to stop terrorism, pretty good goal. But how far are you going to go to the point you have to start asking, have you gone so far to stop the bad guys that you yourself have become a different kind of bad guy? Some good questions to leave on yeah. here at the end of the show today. Any, not not any, bad. Yeah, not bad. Not bad. <laughs> <laughs> any other thoughts come to mind on villains or things that you wanted to explore really quick? Oh, you know, a good bad guy really makes it work. As somebody said, it's, yeah. you know, to you, to, not that you want to pull pro wrestling into this, but you always want to be the bad guy, not the good guy, because the good guys well, are interesting. Pro wrestling is a good example. Yeah. Because you do have those heroes and villains and, and the shades of gray there. It's morality you, theater. But it's much more interesting to play the bad villain than it is to play Superman. Superman's squeaky clean. You can't. You have to stick into that, and that's it. Only when Superman three came along does he get to fight himself. You know, good Superman, bad Superman. Okay, but Superman in and of itself, he's just squeaky clean. So there's nothing there. You've got to be ivory soap on legs. But if you are the bad guy, Lex Luthor or otherwise, you got a lot more sandbox to play with. It's a lot more interesting. The good guys are not always interesting. Batman is interesting because he's very complex. He's almost a bad anti-hero. guy. Antihero. Yeah, he's yeah. an antihero. He's almost a bad guy in a way. But Superman is the absolute epitome of as good as good can be, but he's not always interesting. But he is interesting in a way. So bad guys are always interesting as long as you write them halfway decently. Exactly. Rick and Nick Talk Flicks is sponsored by the Bemidji Theater. We are really looking forward to going back to the Bemidji Theater to watch some of these heroes and villains on screen and to get to enjoy some popcorn and enjoy sitting in the seats and just take in the big screen. We're looking forward to those days quite a bit. But until then, we're filling things still with movie conversation and with the ongoing heroes and villains conversation. All right, time to remove ourselves from Moss Eisley Spaceport for a little bit, Dave. Although <laughs> that was a fun of, uh, a hive of scum and villainy. <laughs> that was a fun, a fun venture into that realm for a little bit, though, and to dig into the complexities of it. Should have wore my leather jacket and felt like the bad boy. <laughs> that makes me think of George Costanza now as well. I could be the bad boy. I'm no, the bad guy. Never be the bad I'm boy. The bad boy. <laughs> I'm Joel Hoover. I'm the bad guy. And we will see you at the the movies. movies.